as we come before your throne again, we come so thankful for all that you have and will do for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Spirit among your people. Especially, Lord, we want to lift up to you this morning our, our sister church, the Church of the Cross. Father, first of all, we want to thank you for blessing all of us with Ken. For years now, Ken has served quietly, faithfully, often behind the scenes to serve the community, to serve the poorest among us in Anniston. Father, I pray that you would now, as he's traveling out west with his wife and taking a much-needed break, Lord, would you fill his heart even in this moment with joy? Would you keep him from feeling discouraged or lonely? Father, would he find his full, his full identity in you alone? Help him as he transitions in heart and mind from leading for so long to now following. And God, give the people at Church of the Cross continued unity in this new leadership. We thank you for Matt. God, I've known him since he was a youth, and so many in this congregation have known him even longer. And Lord, I thank you for his heart for you. But the fact that you've used his abilities at so many different junctures of our time together, I've seen him serve in music, I've seen him serve in youth, I've seen him leave his comfort of this community and go and serve faithfully in North Carolina and come home and now faithfully serve for so many years at Church of the Cross. And now he stands and preaches this morning your holy word. We pray, God, that you would use Matt and the leadership of the elders at Church of the Cross to not only steady the congregation during this transition, but that they would grow exponentially. God, that you would save souls, that they would uh, see the discipleship of your people uh, take on a new uh, level of urgency, and that people would be conformed into your image in such a way that we all see the glory that only you can have in and among your people. We pray, God, that you would do this, not for Matt's name or for Church of the Cross name, but for the name of Jesus Christ. And may we be good fellow Christians to them, that we may love and encourage them along the way. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us out of this world and assembling us together. Now as we hear your word, would you open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, allow us to be transformed through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I want to bring a, a, a sermon this morning. This is the third sermon in Ecclesiastes. And the title is Eat, Drink, and Enjoy. Eat, Drink, and Enjoy. And I, uh, can we put the screen down? I know we got a lot going on. No, we can't. We don't. Okay. All right, usually there's a graphic behind me as I preach, and so um, that graphic is done intentionally the way it is, and I plan to point it out this morning, um, and so I want to go ahead and do that. Next week, you'll see it displayed again, uh, but that graphic, if you've been with us, you might see it as a maze, but if you're a child of the 80s, you see it as a Pac-Man. Um, that's the way I see it. My eyes set and rest on it. And that, that is intentional also. So think with me about this. What is it about the great game Pac-Man? By the way, it revolutionized the arcade when it came out. It came into the United States. 
And uh, I know some of you younger bucks might not have ever played or had the joy of playing Pac-Man, not at home, but in a, a laundromat somewhere or a gas station or, or in an arcade. I used to ride my bike up to uh, the laundromat at the, at the front of 18th Street or 18th Avenue uh, every chance I got to just waste some quarters in that machine. And here's the thing about Pac-Man, isn't it? You go through the maze gobbling up all the little pellets, right, and the ghosts are chasing you. And when you win that maze, what happens? You go to the next level. Same dots. And the music starts, and you eat all the pellets, and the ghosts, ghosts go faster. And so you run faster, and you get through there, and what happens then? Surely y'all play Pac-Man. Come on. What happens when you finish the second board? You go to the third board. What does it look like? The same board. White little dots, pellets all over the place. And you go to eating them, and the ghosts go faster and faster. That's life, isn't it? It's life under the sun. You clear a board. You reach a stage. I got it. You wake up the next morning, white dots all over the place, ghosts chasing you. And you know what? Some of us in our middle age are thinking, let me start younger than that because I'm middle-aged. Let's go younger than me. Some of you are finishing high school, so you're completing a stage. And in your mind right now, you've convinced yourself, when I graduate in May, Life is going to be brand new and grand. It's going to be awesome. Can I tell you that the day after you graduate in May, there will be a brand new board in front of you full of white dots again. The same ghost chasing. And some of you are finishing college, and you're like, that, Carlton, you don't understand. When I finish college, I'm not going to have to sit and listen to some boring guy talk about some subject in a room that I don't care anything about. And my life's going to be grand. And the day you graduate college, you're going to go into the workforce, and guess what is going to be in front of you? The same challenges over again. And some of you are thinking, I'm going to get married. Same thing. You're going to get married. Same dot, same ghost. Some of you are thinking, we're going to have kids, and they're going to fulfill us. And then you have kids, you realize... What was I thinking? I haven't slept in days. There's not enough coffee on the planet to make me be able to do what I need to do today. And then you're going to think, you're my age, and you're going to think, when they get out of the house, life is going to be so simple. And for those who've already crossed over that board to the next, guess what? I already know. It's a new dot, new maze, same problem. The reason that Christian designed the screen the way he did is because this life under the sun is repetitively frustrating, repetitively, it cries back to you vanity, frustration. It doesn't hold the key in itself to your joy 
It doesn't make you feel complete. Harry Reader, who's the pastor at Briarwood, having a conversation with Nancy Guthrie on how to teach the Bible. That's a great podcast. I think that's the name of it. Is it How to Teach the Bible? Yeah, How to Teach the Bible by Nancy Guthrie. Adam pointed me to it. Great resource if you had not listened to it. Nancy does a great job interviewing people, modern pastors that are teaching through God's Word regularly, faithfully, expositionally, and they talk about different books of the Bible, different strategies of teaching. It's awesome. She had Harry Reader on about Ecclesiastes. So a couple weeks ago when Adam pointed me to it, I thought, well, that's great. Harry's great. He'll give me all the answers that I hadn't gotten yet about Ecclesiastes. And in the first paragraph of what he says, he just deflated me completely. Harry said, if you know, he's one of the greatest preachers you'll ever meet, one of the greatest pulpiteers you'll ever listen to. And Harry said, when I taught Ecclesiastes, I just said from the beginning, uh, guys, this is going to be the most disjointed sermon series we've ever had. It's one of the most confusing books I've ever studied. I wish I could tell you that this was all going to wrap up and dissolve into some great package. It's just not. He said, preaching Ecclesiastes causes you to realize that not only this sermon series, but all of life is like cotton candy, sugar-covered air. It's there, you can see it, and as soon as you put your mouth on it, it dissolves away. And it's gone. That's the vapor of this life. That's the frustration of this life. That's the vanity of this life. Or like we said last week, you realize you're shepherding the wind, right? You're you're grabbing and groping at control over something that you cannot control. And we we just have a bad habit of trying as Christians to act like that's not true. The church has gotten really good at making it seem like that's not going on all around us. Not going on in the pew. Not going on in our house. We just think the best thing to do is just ignore it. But what Ecclesiastes beckons us to do is look it square in the eye. This life is like a vapor of frustration that the harder you try to get your hands around it, the more it eludes you, and it's circular like that. And so Solomon, in chapter 1, laid out the purpose of the whole book, didn't he? We saw it when he said, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer he gives is what? Nothing. He doesn't gain anything. And then in Last week we looked at verses 12 through 18 and we saw the the rubric or the tool by which the writer says that Solomon went about finding out the meaning of life. And what was the tool? Right here for us in verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. And this is what some of you did. You, you listened to that sermon so well, and you began to respond to me and say, but Carlton, Proverbs defines wisdom for us. Can you take your Bible, hold your place in Ecclesiastes, and turn to Proverbs? Just go back one book. This book written by Solomon in chapter 1. He talks about this very thing, about wisdom. 
And he says in verse 7, very famous verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom in this passage of Proverbs 1-7 is a positive thing, is it not? It's under fear of the Lord. Godly wisdom, Ryan Limbaugh said this, and I think this, is, I think this definition of godly wisdom is absolutely true. Proverbs, when he was teaching through it, he said this, is the, he defined this uh, as wisdom. This is wisdom. The skill of living, the skill of living life by the paradigm of the gospel for the glory of God. That's what godly wisdom is. The skill. It's not easy, right? It's not like you're just born with it and you wake up one day and you're like, that's easy. I fear the Lord and therefore I have all this wisdom and my life just runs on like a scheduled, perfectly ordered. That's not it. It's a skill to be godly wise. And that skill is to order your life under the paradigm of the gospel so that all that you do brings glory to God. That's Proverbs 1-7 wisdom. Now, flip back to Ecclesiastes, and he says in verse 13 that he set his heart to search and to find and to seek by wisdom all that is done under heaven. But look what he says. It's, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. He describes it as saying, striving after the wind in verse 14. In verse 15, he gives a confirming proverb, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which you do not possess you cannot count. He goes on to say, in his heart, He applied himself to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And it was a striving after the wind. And he says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And when we finished the sermon last week, you rightly said, I thought Proverbs 1-7 said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that wisdom is a positive thing, Carlton. But you see, the, the wisdom of Proverbs is a positive, godly wisdom. The wisdom that Solomon's talking about in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes is general wisdom. It's worldly, we might say, wisdom. Worldly, not by the sinful sense, but just knowing how the world works. You remember, whenever Solomon asked God for wisdom, he said, I want understanding how to rule over this kingdom. And God gave it to him. He therefore classified all of the things around him, all the plants and animals. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,050 songs. People came from what were known that day as the ends of the earth to hear his wisdom. He had great wisdom. But let me define the Ecclesiastes wisdom for you. Really simply, kind of like what, remember, godly wisdom, the skill to live life under the paradigm of the gospel to bring glory to God. But Ecclesiastes' wisdom in this text 
is worldly or general wisdom, I believe, and it's the skill of living life by practical prudence to the glory of self. May I step on a few toes? I'm giving you warning. You might want to stick them underneath the seat. Because this one stepped on my toes all week. What Ecclesiastes says is you can be the wisest person in the room on raising children, on education, on finances, on having an orderly life, and you will prosper far beyond those who do not have that wisdom. But what you will find is in the end, if that's the extent of your wisdom, it is vanity. You'll be really good at a lot of things. And you'll have a bigger bank account and a better retirement. And you'll have everything your eyes, your eyes in this material world can see. And you'll lay your head down to die knowing there had to be more life than this. One of the biggest fears I have for us, church, is that we've learned the skill of living by prudence. So that we can arrive at the end of our lives having a lot of glory for ourselves. So that people will say, man, I'm telling you, that Carlton, he did such a good job at managing his money. Look how he's blessed his children, even in his death. Oh, man, he was a good guy, wasn't he? He was so wise. When I had a problem, I could go to him, and he'd tell me solutions, and they always seemed to work. What a, what a wonderful thing. But let me tell you, if they stand over your casket, and they cannot say, here lies a man who lived his life to the glory of God, then your life was vanity. Let's look at what all areas of life this great sage of ours went to and to find a meaning. Look at chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I'm going to stop right there. We're going to read slowly because expositing this passage seems very simple. And I just want to explain a few things along the way. Because the meaning, where we're going to spend the majority bulk of our time is in the end, the last two Three verses, okay? But I do want to explain some things. Notice that it's by his heart, and his heart is being controlled by wisdom, that he goes after pleasure. Don't read into this, the college frat life lived wild uh, on Panama City Beach for spring break. That's not who Solomon was. He wasn't out reveling in the streets. He applied the wisdom that he had been given by God by his heart to search out the meaning of pleasure and the meaning of laughter, to understand it. And the vexation of it began to bring this heavy weight that he even turned to wine to help relieve. The frustrations began to mount and he turned to wine. He said, I'll cheer my heart with wine. I'll make my body happy with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom, he says. This wasn't out of control is my point. This wasn't like he just went hog wild. 
and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He's recreating the Garden of Eden. He's recreating it. He's saying the greatest time that man experienced was in the garden in fellowship with God. Therefore, I will make my dwelling and the dwelling of Jerusalem and the people of Israel like that time. We will go backwards. We will plant great vineyards. We will have great fruit trees. We will have pools of water. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines that delight the sons of man. The, the, the Edenic period here of, of Solomon's rule, that thing that looked like similar to the Garden of Eden, it didn't include vine, only vineyards and fruit trees and pools of water like the rivers that flowed through Eden. It also included all of the fine metals that could be mined all over the earth, and they were all brought in. You, you, you've read Genesis, haven't you? Where it talked about the different stones that were, that were coming up out of the earth there. He's recreating what he thinks will bring significance, and he's doing it with wisdom, and he's searching out folly and pleasure. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all, all of it was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. If you are setting your life up to enjoy life the way Solomon describes he was trying to enjoy life by this worldly wisdom, may I just tell you at the end of your life, and during your life, you will be completely unsatisfied. It will never be enough. It will be just like cotton candy. It will melt as soon as you think you've got some kind of subsistence from it. And may I tell you, child here, youth here, college-age person starting out your life here, may I warn you with this? If that's the way you structure your life, you will have momentary pleasure and potentially eternal hell to pay. It will destroy you. It will intoxicate you. It is a trap. Only a few ever realize what that trap is and by God's grace come out of it. So I warn you, don't go down this path. That's what Solomon's saying. That's what the writer's saying. He's saying, you think you can enjoy these things? Let me tell you a man who had it all. He turned his world into a proverbial Garden of Eden. And at the end, it was striving after wind. 
and it was vanity, and there was nothing to gain, he said, under the sun. So I turned to consider, verse 12, wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So this is, all, this is almost proverbial, isn't it? It's, it's that not that you should go about your life foolishly, Solomon would say, that would be wandering out into darkness. But it's rather that even in the success of knowing worldly wisdom, it, it won't in the end make you satisfied. Look what he says in verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What is that event? What is the great leveler of all men? Death. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. This is absolutely the case, is it not? The person that you walk past with a cup in his hand asking for your change, when he dies, he will face the same end as the greatest among us. When Jeff Bezos dies, the richest man in the world, and when that guy on the corner holding out a cup dies, the leveler has happened, death. And the wisdom of Jeff Bezos will get him no further in, the, in eternity than the man standing on the street with a cup. Oh, he may enjoy the light of this light, life under the sun, Bezos, while the other dwells in darkness. But in the end, if that's all he has, he has nothing. And even if he does it, and you, and you in here may be the next great, one that they will name a building after or put a statue up but listen in a few generations they'll tear the statue down and they'll erase your name from the building and they'll replace it with someone else because the wisdom of your age will not be wisdom in their age and so just like the fool you'll be erased that's what he says how the wise dies just like the fool so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. You hear the repetitiveness? You should hear the repetitiveness of this. Now he turns from understanding pleasure, where he finds nothing but striving after wind, and understanding wisdom and folly, and finding death to be the great leveler of all men, so that that is striving after wind. And he turns to a third place, and that's toil, work. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toil and use, use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. 
over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes, listen to this, a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill has to leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who, who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. How many great men have worked their entire lives to amass a wealth that when they die, their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren receive become lazy sots, wasted all, and in the end are the person on the street corner holding the cup. It happens over and over and over again. That's what he's saying. I found that the harder I worked, the more frustrated I was because I can realize I'll never spend it all. And when I die, those who come after me, who knows whether they'll be wise or a fool. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he turned wisdom to pleasure, and he found vanity. He turned wisdom to understanding the difference between wisdom and folly in this life, and he found it striving after the wind. He turned to his work, which he thought would bring him great satisfaction, and in the end he said, there's nothing good under the sun. There's nothing good under heaven. This all is vanity. I just want us to uncomfortably sit under the weight of what I've just read. These are the words of God to us, church. Is there any hope? Three sermons. Three sermons, and I want to end this sermon with the only hope that any of us have. Look at what he says in verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Here it is. This also I saw as from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. I take that, by the way, this, that word this, pronoun. What is it connected to in our passage? I believe it's connected to the whole passage. Is connected to the whole passage in the sense of this way. The guy right above it who doesn't please God only gathers that which God will use to bless those who please God in the end. So the description in verses 1 through 23 is the description of a person who doesn't know God, doesn't please God, but is very wise according to the world, amasses all these great treasures, and then what does God do with it? He blesses those who do please him. In general, he takes care of his own children. 
And so the work of that worldly wise man is vanity and striving after wind. That's what it is. How do we please God, church? Well, a simple answer would be by knowing him and enjoying him forever. Let me flip for you the script. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus being asked by the people in his day for a sign. I want, we want a sign. Verse 38 of chapter 12 says, Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says the only sign for your generation, you adulterous people, the only sign for you is the saving work that I'm about to perform. That's it. When I die and I'm buried and three days later raised from the dead, that's the sign to you to not follow the ways of this world, but follow me, the Son of God. Nineveh, he says, that great city, it will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, which was very poor, by the way. Jonah was a terrible preacher. Awful. I say that as a fellow preacher who's preached awfully. He was awful. He was sent by God to preach a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. And what did he do? He didn't even walk all the way through the city. He barely got into it, mumbling under his breath. Yeah, you get 40 days and y'all are all going to die. Hoping no one would respond. He left and went out and sat down under a tree and waited for God to judge Nineveh. And what did God do? God broke forth into those people through their king and their leaders and they repented in sackcloth and ashes and called on God to forgive them. That city, Nineveh, is going to rise up against not just Jesus' generation but against our generation and say, we had a sorry preacher who barely preached a muffled message and yet God, when we heard it, changed our hearts. You had the fullness of the gospel you saw the ends of the ages. You knew Christ raised from the dead. And you didn't believe? The hope of Jesus is not some idea. The hope of Jesus is a rock of the gospel. And that is that if you place your faith in him, he will raise you from the dead like he was raised from the dead. And therefore your life will have ultimate meaning. And if you're outside of Christ, it's all vanity. And then he goes on. Jesus says, The queen of the south, verse 42, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 through 23 offers us no hope. In verse 24 through 26, Solomon finally says, our writer finally says, 
The hope is that you please God. How do we please God? We know him and enjoy him forever. How do we know him? We know his son, Jesus Christ, who is greater than Solomon. The wisdom of this world is not enough. We need godly wisdom, the skill to live our life according to a gospel paradigm so that we bring glory to God in all that we do and all that we say in this life, church. Our greater Solomon has given us the greater wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel. Don't be a fool and chase after folly. Rather, come to this godly wisdom. Come. Listen to the wisdom of this one, Jesus Christ. He teaches us in Matthew chapter 6. And listen to what he says. He says, I won't read all of it because time won't allow it. But let me just say this. He brings Solomon up in Matthew 6 too. And what he says about him there is, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus uses Solomon there, right? And what is it that he tells them, the people to do at the end of the passage in verse 33? But seek first the what? Kingdom of God. You want to know what godly wisdom is? It's seeking first the kingdom of God. It's the proverbial knowledge of fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. It's learning the skill to live your life for the glory of God, the kingdom of God. Now he says something else. What does he say? And all these things. What are these things? Pleasure. You want to enjoy your life? Who in here wants to enjoy their life? Just raise your hand up. You want to enjoy your life? Seek Christ through the gospel paradigm of laying down your life and taking on, by faith, the life of Jesus. In other words, say to Jesus, you're the only hope I have. I lay down my life by the power of faith, and I want you to live in me. And by faith, live for the kingdom of God. Live for it every day. Wake up with a heart burning to say, I'm going to find my joy in this day by going to work and put my hands to the task God's given me. Not for my boss, not for my coworker, not so I get a paycheck, but for God alone. That's why I'm going to work. And the tedium of your day will become a place of praise to his great name. You want to know how to enjoy the party which will never end? Come to know Jesus Christ. And when you go into the presence of those who are singing and laughing and making revelry, you'll be happier than all. And their sinful enjoyment will not infect you. You will infect them with this contagion of the gospel to say, hey, you know something? That drink you're drinking right there, doesn't it make you feel good? Yep, it makes you feel great, doesn't it? It's not going to feel good in the morning, is it? No, it's going to be terrible. Do you know I know one who not only makes you feel good right now tonight at 1130, but I know one who will make you feel good for the rest of eternity? 
We don't run from sinners in their revelry. We run to them with the gospel. You want to know how to enjoy life? It's to seek God in his kingdom by faith. And all these other things are added to you. You'll find the simple and pleasure of a night with your children in the front yard playing wiffle ball. Or in the darkness of the night catching fireflies. And when they sing and laugh and run and hop and you're watching them, it'll remind you that your father gives you good gifts. And life takes on all new meaning. And you'll go into the house of sorrow, those who are weeping, and you'll sit next to them and weep, and yet say to them with full assurance, we weep tonight, but joy comes in the morning. Church, if you're not living your life this way, your life is vanity. Jesus Christ is the godly wisdom that we so need. May I just close by seeing Paul's instruction to us about this godly wisdom? I spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes, and I knew quickly I'm going to Matthew 12. It's the perfect chance. We got two chances to do typology. I stole it from whoever preaches that next message. You can't do it. Find another way. That's okay. But then the end of my week was spent meditating on 1 Corinthians. And I see 1 Corinthians in a completely different way because I studied Ecclesiastes too. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the what? Wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God, give me wisdom to live in this world. For my own self, God will thwart that wisdom. He will break your back with that kind of wisdom. Praise his name. He will crush you under the weight of that wisdom. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? I, I hear in Paul, where is Solomon? Where is he? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, godly wisdom, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentile. Paul said his understanding of how life is not vain is the cross. And the wisdom of this world is crushed under that. And the wisdom and the discernment of this age is made to look like folly under the rubric of the cross. And Paul says, we come to you with Christ and we preach him crucified. 
for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. The problem so often is we're so busy helping people be prudent and wise in this world that we miss the starting gate, which is the fear of the Lord, which comes only by knowing the wise man, wiser than Solomon, Jesus, and the fact that he died and was raised and now has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And through him, we know a new kind of wisdom, which seems like folly to everybody else. The problem is too many of us are trying to look smart to our lost friends rather than believe the wisdom of God. I was talking about evangelism with somebody just this week, and they were asking me about all these great arguments that you can use to argue people into heaven, and I just finally, I said, you can't do it. You can't argue someone into heaven. They kind of looked at me like I was growing a horn out of the side of my face. You can't argue anybody into heaven. I was having another conversation with Jake about this this week. How do we get to heaven? By the power of God. And what's the power of God? Being smart? Having good argument? No, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you meet that person that wants to argue with you about worldwide floods and whether there was one man named Adam that was created and whether or not evolution or seven-day creation is right or whether God is actually dwelling in a body or not and all these wise things they want to talk about, just look them in the eye and say, let me just tell you this, none of that matters unless you know Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Can I tell you about him? You say, well, that's offensive. It's offensive to the world. Until the Spirit of God brings them to understanding. Presuppositionalism is the only way you will ever win someone to Christ. Stand on the island alone of the gospel and look at the lost man on his deserted island and say, come join me by the power of the Spirit. Don't get down in the muck and mire of all these other arguments that we can have. Until someone knows Christ, they don't get the answers anyway. We're about to see that in just a minute. Tell them about the one who is wiser than Solomon. Show them why their life is folly because it is vanity in the end and you die and the playing field is leveled and you don't know Christ, you go to hell. What good is it that you had fun in this life? What good is it? Your life is a blip, a literal, almost unseeable dot. It's a vapor and then the real life begins. Which one are you living for? That's the kind of boldness that Paul had because he understood the wisdom of God is not like the wisdom of men. God didn't choose to bring people into his kingdom by wise people, but rather by foolish people and weak people so that why? He would get all the glory for people coming. The foolishness. So Paul says in chapter 2 of Corinthians, verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, Solomon included. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You came to know God not through the wisdom of this world, but through 
the foolishness of the cross and the Spirit opened your eyes to see it. That then gives you the ability to look at the world through the grid, the paradigm of the gospel, and live wisely, skillfully in this world for his glory and his kingdom. And then life has meaning, and only then. In 1 Corinthians, we go on to verse chapter 10, verse 31. We don't have to turn there. What does it say? Whether you eat or whether you drink. By the way, that verse comes at the end of a wisdom. Should I eat meat off the idols? Should I not? And Paul says, well, it depends. Got to use some wisdom given to you by the Spirit through the gospel to be able to make that decision. But listen, in the end, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You don't think Paul knew what Ecclesiastes 2 said? Absolutely he knew it. He comes to the end of the letter, near the end, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, and he says to them, listen to the way Paul ends talking about the resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the toil, the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You don't think he knew what Ecclesiastes said? Vanity. It's all vanity. Paul says, you're exactly right. As long as you live outside of Christ, it's all worthless. But when you know it, your labor is not in vain. You have the wisdom to eat, drink, and enjoy this life. And you have the message which, though it seems like folly to the world, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God to bring lost souls darkened by the sin that they chose to the throne of grace for salvation, church. This is what we learn from the words of God. This is the word of God. Base your life on it. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in this word, we ask that you would use these words to change and transform us by the power of your son to his glory it's in your name we pray amen thank you for being with us i want to close by inviting everyone to join us for home group some of you may not know what that is you can see me you can see someone else adam who was up here leading in the blue jacket Corey's in the back with your children Hopefully they survived Pastor Corey today. But you, when you see one of us, talk to us. We want to get you in a home group. If you're not in a home group, you're missing the lot, kind of like the life of our church. Here, the life of our church is extolled through the gospel in public. There, it's, it's got flesh on it. It's able to be prayed for. You're able to be prayed for. You're able to work together. You're able to come to better understandings and applications that's where we do it is in our home group. So our home groups meet Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. I think Thursday night's actually changed. It's Sunday night right now. Bruce's group used to be Thursday, but for this season, they're moving to Sunday night. So Sunday and Wednesday night, see us about those. We want you in those, uh, please. So if there's nothing else for us to say or do, let's stand and be dismissed.